right, well, good morning. I am so good to see you all. Um, I am very much in need of your prayers this morning because uh, I wasn't expecting to preach today. Um, I have always thought that it would really be a good idea to have a couple of extra sermons in my back pocket. I've always thought that that would be a great idea, and but I'm a procrastinator. Never got around to do it, doing it. So, um, by God's grace, I was able to prepare a word which I hope and pray would be a blessing to you and would glorify our Lord Jesus. Um, our text today is from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. Um, is that the stand for the reading of God's word? I think that's a great tradition that Adam has started, and I'd like to continue that, okay? It says in 1 Peter 2, verses 13 to 17, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent to him, by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Lord, please bless the hearing and the preaching of your word today. Please help me, Lord God, help me to say what is true and correct, and it would be a blessing to your people and would glorify you. Jesus' name. So this passage was written during the brutal and corrupt days of the corrupt Roman Empire. So reading this passage, which seems to straightforwardly say that we're supposed to obey government authorities, should raise some questions in your mind. And you know what? There it goes. So to illustrate the questions that it should raise, I'd like to play for you a clip from a very old classic movie that most, if not all of you, probably all of you have seen this before. So, okay, so I assume you all know the story behind the musical, The Sound of Music, but just in case you don't, the story takes place in Austria sometime in the 1930s. The main character, Maria, was on track to take vows as a nun. However, she was a bit of a problematic novitiate. How do you solve a problem like Maria? So the Reverend Mother sent her to take a job as a governess to a large family to give her time and space to test her calling. Okay. There, while there, she ended up falling in love with the children and also with their widowed father, Captain Von Trapp. They married, and after the wedding, Captain Von Trapp was ordered to accept a commission in the German Navy, which she, of course, had no intention of doing because he opposed the Nazis. On the night that he would be forced to accept the commission, the captain, the Maria, Maria and the children went into hiding in the abbey where Maria had been training as a nun. Of course, the Nazis have no respect for a convent, so they barged in. When the Von Trapps were discovered, they took off for the hills. 
You would expect a major chase scene after this, but the Nazi officers were unable to start their cars, as you see, because two of those sweet, innocent nuns yanked the ignition coil and the distributor cap and the spark plug wires, so the van tra traps got away easily. Movie ends shortly after with scenes of the Von Trapp family traversing the Alps across the Swift border to choruses of climb every mountain, ford every stream. Isn't that nice? Okay. But the scene we watch raises an interesting question. Did the nuns indeed sin by sabotaging the cars? What do you think? Well, they definitely were not submitting to the governing authorities. In fact, the entire abbey was complicit in hiding the Van Trapp family, who were fugitives trying to get away from governing authorities. They were aiding and abetting Captain Von Trapp, who was attempting what, well, federal law enforcement authorities call this UFAP, which is unlawful flight to avoid prosecution. So the heroes of our story are guilty of aiding and abetting a fugitive who was guilty of UFAP, and last but not least, the nuns were guilty of willful and malicious destruction of government and property. The movie doesn't tell us how the Nazis dealt with the nuns, if they suffered any consequences for their unlawful actions, but the question remains. Did these nuns, who I assume knew their Bibles well, did they actually sin by sabotaging the, Nat the Nazi cars? Our text today seems straightforward enough. Peter tells us that we are to, subject, that we are to be subject to the government authorities that God has instituted. The Apostle Paul says it even more forcefully in a parallel passage in Romans 13 says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever risks the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to a good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval." for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he's a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to, God's, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Now both Peter and Paul were essentially saying the same thing. Government authorities are instituted by God and we are to obey them. Yet, at the same time, History tells us that both Peter and Paul were martyred, executed by the governing Roman authorities for, in effect, disobeying government authorities. What was their offense? They were preaching that Jesus, who was crucified and is now risen, 
is the legitimate reigning king to whom they owe ultimate allegiance. It's not like they weren't warned. Very early on in the book of Acts, Peter and John were warned that they were not to preach about the risen Jesus. What did Peter and John reply? Acts 4.19 says, But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. True to their word, Peter and John kept preaching, which got them hauled before the Sanhedrin again. Let's look at Acts 5. And when they had brought them again, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles, and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. After reading about these incidents, and knowing the number of times that the Apostle Paul was flogged, beaten, jailed, and eventually executed for preaching the gospel in defiance of Roman authorities, you would wonder why both apostles make such seemingly categorical statements in Scripture about needing to obey government authorities. Well, it turns out that the statements are not as categorical as they seem. Let's take another look at our passage from today from 1 Peter 2. Let's read it again. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. So we've just finished studying the books of Ezra and Nehemiah in a series that we have called Citizen Exiles. These books, along with the book of Esther, which we're going to be uh, studying in the coming weeks, they have much to say about how God's covenant people are to comport themselves in a society and culture that in many ways is at odds with the people's calling to obey God. Last week, John Lofness preached from Matthew 21, stating that our ultimate allegiance is to King Jesus who has set us free from the power of sin and has also given us the freedom to obey him, even if that obedience is at odds with the government, society, and culture where he has placed us. Obviously, so, when the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of man clash, there is going to be some tension. I'd submit to you that today's passage gives us insight into how to navigate that tension. 
I'd like to highlight for you four major points that we can draw from this passage. The first one, God is the ultimate king of kings who appoints human magistrates to punish evil and promote good. You get that from verses 13 and 14. God is the ultimate king of kings who appoints human magistrates to punish evil and promote good. The second point comes from verse 15. As Christians and as citizen exiles, we are to be model citizens. As Christians and citizen exiles, we are to be model citizens. The third point comes from verse 16. Our ultimate allegiance is to Jesus, who has set us free to obey him. And finally, from verse 17, we are to fear God above all else and otherwise give everyone the love and honor that they are due. We are to fear God above all else and otherwise give everyone the love and honor that they are due. So point one, God appoints human magistrates to punish evil and promote good. When I mentioned earlier that today's passage was written during the brutal and corrupt Roman Empire, well, perhaps I was overstating the case a bit. It was certainly true that by the first century, the empire was brutal and corrupt. At that time, the succession of Roman emperors were declaring themselves to be gods and insisted on being worshiped as such, and their personal behavior was anything but godlike. They could also be ruthless at quashing any dissent or uprising, which was most notably demonstrated in 70 AD when they leveled the city of Jerusalem. Okay, so they were corrupt and brutal. But let's give the Romans a little credit where credit is due. Back before the emperors started getting a little too full of themselves and making claims to deity, the Roman Republic actually functioned as a democracy it was actually pretty well run. You will also notice in certain passages of the New Testament involving the early church, there were some instances where the Romans were actually the good guys. On more than one occasion, the Apostle Paul played his Roman citizenship card to get out of trouble, okay? Most notably, this was in Acts 21, 22, where he's about to get lynched by a Jewish mob. It was Roman soldiers who rescued him. Let's take a look at that passage. This is when uh, everything breaks loose and everyone's screaming. It says, then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the air, for he should not be allowed to live. And they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air. The tribune ordered Paul, him, Paul, to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging. That's an interesting way to examine some question people. I think a polygraph would be more effective, but... <laughs> by flogging, to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, um, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do? This man is a Roman citizen. 
So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, well, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. Now the Romans, after this, they subsequently insisted that Paul's case was not going to be governed by mob rule. He was to be given a chance to confront his accusers in an orderly proceeding. Later on, the Roman authorities found out about a plot to take Paul's life, and what did they do? They whisked him away in the middle of the night to Caesarea. He was accompanied by 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen. They did this to protect Paul from the mob. That's not too bad. That's a pretty well-functioning government. My point is not to defend some of the obvious brutality of the Roman Empire, but rather to say, like all governments, they got it right sometimes. Governments, as the scriptures say, are appointed by God to promote good and to punish evil. That is specifically what God has delegated, delegated and authorized them to do. And they are to be supported and obeyed in their God-given mission. How are we to support and obey them? By doing what is good and right, which leads us to point two. As Christians and citizen exiles, we are to be model citizens. Let's take another look at verse 15. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. In the first and second centuries, Christians, this is almost funny, it is kind of funny, Christians were accused of being atheists. This accusation was indeed foolish and ignorant. It's not that Christians did not believe in God. Of course they did. They just didn't believe in the right gods. They didn't believe in the entire pantheon of, of gods from Roman mythology, and they didn't, certainly didn't believe that the Roman emperor, emperors were gods. Peter was telling his first century readers that the best way to silence this ignorance and foolishness was to be a model citizen, to always strive to do what is good and right, even if that is not always or immediately appreciated. In the next chapter, in chapter 3, Peter noticed, starting in verse 13, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ as the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who, revile, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. 
For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Here we get one of many hints that the command to submit to governing authorities is not absolute, because there will be times when doing the right thing will get you into trouble. More on that later. But the behavior that Peter was advocating is what in due time caused many people from all stations of life to eventually be won over to Christianity. A few examples. There were times of major plagues and sickness, and a lot of people in society, when someone in their family got this awful plague, they didn't stay and take care of them. They put them out of the house to die because they were scared of getting sick. What did the Christians do? They took them in and cared for them. They risked their lives to care for the sick. When people abandoned their unwanted babies to the garbage dump, which was the first century equivalent of late-term abortion, what did Christians do? They retrieved them from the garbage dump cared for them, and nurtured them. People noticed that Christians lived for something beyond themselves, and that had an impact for societal good. Similarly, in the Old Testament, in the books that we just studied, when God's covenant people were exiled to Babylon, the prophet Jeremiah advised them to be, in fact, model citizens. Jeremiah 29.7 says, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Interesting. Though their ultimate allegiance was to the God of Israel, the exiled Jews were instructed to seek the good of Babylon, to be good neighbors, to be good citizens. Similarly, our ultimate allegiance is to King Jesus and to the kingdom of God. But we happen to be living in a place called the United States of America. There are a lot of terrible things going on in the United States of America which cause our hearts as Christians to break. Yet there's also a lot of good going on here too. Our calling as Christians is to be model citizens of this country where God has placed us to pray for and seek the good of our country, our state, and our county. Most significantly, we need to be seen doing good in places like Gambrels, Crofton, Bowie, Upper Marlboro, or wherever we happen to be living. We don't do this because the USA is a better place than any other nation. Though some might make the argument that despite its many flaws, this is a great place to live. After all, people are still trying to come here. We do this because our ultimate allegiance is to Jesus, who called us to seek the good of our neighbor and the good of that city where we live. And this brings us to point three. Our ultimate allegiance is to Jesus, who has set us free to obey him. Let's look at verse 16 again. 
Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. If you were not here last week for John's sermon, I commend it to you to listen online and even listen again. I listened to it again and came up with the following points. He said that Jesus is the ultimate king, the king of the universe, though his kingship was misunderstood. Kings are, are supposed to protect people, establish harmony and peace, and defend people from outside attackers. Jesus came to set things right. But the initial and primary problem he needed to set right was that everyone was alienated from God and under his judgment. He did some other things more immediately to set things right. He challenged corruption. He overturned the money changers in the, ta the tables of the money changers in the temple. He challenged corruption, especially in the priesthood. He did this because he's king. But again, the main thing he did to set things right was to die for the sins of his people. And yet there's more to his rule than dying for us. To follow Jesus is to follow a king, the king of the universe. He created the world and he rules it. He has delegated to human magistrates in anticipation of his return, just like we read in 1 Peter 2 and Romans 13. These magistrates are supposed to rule according to his justice. And kings ignore Jesus' kingship at their own peril and to the detriment of his people. Jesus established justice not by destroying his enemies, but by dying for them. And he has decided to delay his punishment of the wicked until his return. And he could do that because he is king. So how does that relate to us in our situation? Well, as John said, we don't put our hope and trust in a political program. We follow King Jesus. In our history, our forefathers replaced the concept of a king with the concept of we the people and the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And this actually worked pretty well for quite a while. Even with the injustice of slavery, which was abolished largely due to Christian impulses, our nation was populated with a, pop, with a plurality of people who submitted to Jesus as king, who, or who at least feared God enough that we could arrange our society according to Christian ethics. All that's changed now. Now, from the freedom of conscience that was envisioned by our forefathers, forefathers, that has now morphed into freedom to be and to do whatever you want, and I am my own king and lord, and nobody can tell me otherwise. It's no longer the freedom to follow Jesus, and this has produced massive conflict. So now, we find ourselves, or may find ourselves, in situations where society might demand of us things that are contrary to the will of our King Jesus. If that hasn't happened to you, well, good for you. You are blessed. But I think it's only a matter of time. We need to pray and think long and hard about how we will respond when that moment comes. We must be prepared to respond appropriately and to obey Jesus, our King. And yet, we need not be dismayed because we are still free to follow Jesus 
Jesus told us that if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. This means, of course, first and foremost, that we've been set free from the power of sin, and we now have the freedom to obey our King. But it also means that we are free to obey Him, even if the dictates of our culture, our workplace, or our government tell us to do otherwise. If there is a conflict between competing dictates, we need to count the cost and be prepared to face the consequences of obeying Jesus. But I don't think we have much choice in the matter. But on the other hand, let's be careful. What we are free to do is obey Jesus, which means doing what is right and good. Peter made this clear. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. If we go against the dictates of our culture, our workplace, or our government, it had better be truly because they are asking us to do something that is contrary to the will of God and not just contrary to our personal preferences. For example, I'll give you a personal example. I hate the fact that Prince George's County Public Schools is one of only two jurisdictions in the nation that has continued to require students and teachers to wear masks on school property. You might think differently, but I find it totally unnecessary and it does more harm than good. I am more concerned about the bacteria accumulating in my mask than I am of catching COVID. I am more concerned about the psychological effects on children who after coming out of forced isolation of distance learning continue to be isolated behind a face mask. I also find it physically exhausting to have to wear a mask all day long. I hate it and I am so glad that finally effective this coming week they are lifting the mask mandate. But as much as I hated the mask mandate it is not morally wrong. My King Jesus has said nothing indicating that wearing a mask is morally problematic. So I obey what the school authorities tell me to do, just as Jesus would want me to. On the other hand, there are other things that the school district wants me to do that King Jesus might not approve. According to school policy and the annual indoctrination and death by PowerPoints that I have to watch every year, I must not only tolerate behaviors that King Jesus disapproves of, I should affirm and support and even celebrate them. So if I as a teacher do not refer to a student by their preferred pronouns, even when those pronouns are contrary to their physical reality, I can get into big trouble. That has not happened yet, but I've come awful close. Some of you have heard me tell this story before, but because we're recording and posting this online, I'm going to change the names. About three weeks into the school year last year, I was advised that I would be receiving a new student who was transferring from another school. I looked on my roster to check her name, so when she arrived, I was just able to say, Oh, welcome. You must be Patricia. Yes, she replied, but you can call me Patrick. 
I was caught off guard, so I just swallowed hard and went on with the class. The story had a somewhat favorable and happy ending as I was later able to take her aside and tell her, look, I'm really sorry. I know you want me to call you Patrick, but I really can't. And thankfully, she said, that's fine. I'm not going to be offended. You call me Patricia. But the situation could have turned out differently, and I could have had to make a choice between following Jesus and keeping my job. In my case, that might not have been a big deal because I can retire anytime I want to. I'm only two years away. And I could retire now, and I could still do fine. But there are others of you who are much younger that if you had a choice like that to make, the, situation, the, this, the decision is going to be a lot harder because you might be depending on your job for your livelihood. Now, some of you might be thinking, Leo, aren't you making too big a deal of this? Is it really a sin to call her Patrick if that's her preference? Well, that's a good question. And I realize that there are some borderline situations where Christians will differ on how we should respond. And that leads us to point four. Point four says we are to fear God above all else and otherwise give everyone the love and honor that they are due. Let's look again at 1 Peter 2.17. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. After that, that um, conversation with Patricia, actually the first conversation with Patricia, at my first opportunity, I went across the hall to talk to a colleague who I very much respect. He's an older gentleman and definitely a committed Christian. I shared my predicament with him and he nodded understandably and commiserated with me. But he eventually asked, why don't you just go ahead and call her Patrick? I said, I didn't think I'd be able to do that in good conscience. And I would really need to pray this through. So what did he do? He invited me to pray with him. And we prayed for, Pat for Patricia, that God would grant her grace and illumination and help her to get over any confusion or angst that she was experiencing. Now, even though the two of us as Christians came down on slightly different sides of the issue, there was mutual love and respect. That's what it means to honor everyone, to love the brotherhood and to fear God. My fellow teacher didn't get on my case by accusing me of being too narrow-minded or by drawing the line in the sand in the wrong place. Instead, he prayed for me and with me, and I was very much encouraged. My colleague didn't have a problem with calling a student something other than their given name at their request, and admittedly, that in itself is not sinful. I had a problem with it because of what calling her Patrick represented, that I would be affirming her in her self-delusion. I felt that if I did not draw a line there, I would start to go down a slippery slope. As Christians, we might differ as to where we're supposed to draw the line. My only caution is to be very careful, to make sure that we are not compromising our commitment to Jesus by over-rationalizing. That's why as Christians, 
it's a good idea for us to have mutually respectful and loving conversations on these matters, just like my colleague and I did. If you find yourself in a situation where you feel like you're being asked to compromise your commitment to King Jesus, that would be a great thing to bring up at community group or just in regular conversation with brothers and sisters in the church. There will be times when you are clearly being asked to compromise your faith and you're going to have to choose to follow Jesus instead. There are other situations that aren't so clear. So let's talk and pray these things through together, okay? And if you must take a stand, that does not mean that you need to be confrontational and obnoxious about it. That's why Peter says to honor everyone, even the emperor. Recently, I did something that perhaps was not so honoring to those in authority. PGCPS, the school system, had actually lifted the mandate, the mask mandate over the summer, only to impose it again one week before the school opened. I was livid. I was so angry. How convenient of them to reimpose that mandate after July 15th, which is the last day that you can resign without prejudice. Very interesting. I was not a happy camper. I was just plain angry, and I felt like protesting. So what did I do? I went to the expense of ordering some custom-made T-shirts with slogans emblazoned on them in English, Spanish, and Italian. They said, no more masks, just say no to masks. I have had it with masks. I also took a Sharpie pen and wrote on my mask, no more mask mandates, worn under protest. So during the in-service week before school, a number of my colleagues were supportive and quite amused. But I started to have second thoughts when I wore my protest apparel the following week when the students were in school. What kind of an example was I setting for them? Was I really honoring those in authority or was I undermining their authority? So in order to not be un misunderstood and in order to redeem what was possibly setting a bad example, I gave this little speech to each of my classes. I told them, well, you may have noticed what is written on my t-shirt and on my mask. I do not care for the mask mandate. I sincerely believe that masks are ineffective and unnecessary at this point. But you know what? As you can see, I am still wearing a mask. Though I disagree with the rule, I am still obeying it because the rule is there and there's nothing morally wrong with wearing a mask. I hate wearing masks, but I will wear them as long as those over me in the school system tell me that I have to. You too might not like a lot of the rules we have in school. You might not understand them, or you might think that they are silly. You might even be right. But you should obey the rule anyway. If nothing else, obeying the rules is a way of showing respect and honor to those in authority. 
If, on the other hand, someone imposes a rule on you that is morally wrong or that violates your conscience, it is your right and duty to challenge or question it and ultimately to disobey it if it is indeed morally wrong. But if you have the courage to challenge and disobey an immoral rule, also be prepared to face the consequences of your choice. In a nutshell, that's what 1 Peter 2, 13 to 17 is telling us. Our ultimate obedience is to King Jesus. Jesus has instituted governing authorities and he expects us to obey and honor them. Only if they are telling us to do something that he prohibits or if they are telling us to not do something that he commands should we resist or disobey those in authority. And even then, we must do so with wisdom and respect. Oh, Lord God, please help us. Please help us in these times and in, this, and in the circumstances that we're in to always, always, always obey you as King Jesus and help us to find ways to honor and obey those in authority over us as long as it does not contravene your will. Help us, Lord God, to be good citizens. Help us to seek the good of those around us. Help us to give honor where honor is due. Help us to do good to all of those around us, to always do good and thereby put to shame the foolish talk of ignorant people. Help us to be a sweet-smelling savor to those around us, that they might be won over to you because of our behavior, which is submitted to you, King Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.